Well, what I want to talk about this morning is actually the core thought of much that I was thinking about this church earlier in the spring and things that were happening around the life of this church. And if I would have had a Sunday morning during that time, this is what I kept thinking about wanting to talk about. And it's a message that has both personal application as well as corporate application. So I want you to think of this in your own personal life, and I want you to think of this holistically as a part of this body, a part of this community, both what you've been through in the last six months and truthfully what you'll be through in the next six, because this process I don't think ends. When you said something about this congregation this morning being covered with a blanket, the word that came to me was comforter. A blanket is a comforter, and it is a comfort. And so I even think what I hope to say today is oddly comforting. Oddly comforting. I have six children and a granddaughter, but I'll just say I have six children. They're currently 26, 25, 23, 20, 17, and 15, if I got all six. And my kids loved it when I read them books. And they still love it. At least my granddaughter does. And so I would like to read to you a children's book that I think has a very mature message. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt by Michael Rosen and Helen Oxenbury. How many of you have read this book or know it? Yeah, some hands are going up. So I'm going to read it to you the same way I've read this so many times to my own children. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, grass. Long, wavy grass. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We've got to go through it. Swishy-swashy, 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 swishy-swashy. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a river, a deep, cold river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Uh-oh, we've what? Say it. We've got to go through it. Splash, 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 splash. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, mud. Thick, oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Uh-oh, we've got to go through it. Squelch, squirch, squelch, squirch, squelch, squirch. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a forest, a big dark forest. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a snowstorm, a swirling, whirling snowstorm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. 
uh-oh, a cave, a narrow, gloomy cave. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. What's that? One shiny, wet nose, two big, furry ears, two big, goggly eyes. It's a bear. Quick, back through the cave, tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. Back through the snowstorm, whoo, 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 whoo. Back through the forest, stumble, trip, stumble, trip, stumble, trip. Back through the mud, <coughs> excuse me, squelch, 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 squelch. Back through the river, splash, 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 splash. Back through the grass, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. Get to our front door, up the door, uh, open the door, up the stairs. Oh no, we forgot to shut the door. Back downstairs, shut the door, back upstairs, into the bedroom, into the bed, under the covers. And we're not going on a bear hunt again. What I want to show you in your Bible, and it's probably going to be on a screen behind me, you can open your Bible if you have it, is I want you to hear the psalmist say the almost exact same thing. And it's in Psalm chapter 42. Now, the first time I heard Psalm 42, I didn't hear it spoken. I actually heard it sung. And I heard the beginning of that psalm sung. And here's how I heard it. And I'm not musical, but this is how I heard it. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. You, O Lord, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. And, and it was a worship song that I sang as a very young believer 34 years ago. And I remember when I would sing that song, I would imagine myself like this in this beautiful setting and this deer just down by this brook lapping up this water in a very intimate moment with God. And that's the setting that I understood this psalm. The problem was I had not read deep enough into the psalm because this psalm is very much like that book, that scary book that I just read. Psalm chapter 42, verse 1 says this, as the deer, stop right there for a second, what was the, what was the animal most common in the Middle East? Was it, a, was, it, was it a deer? What was it? It was a camel. There's a difference between a camel and a deer. A camel is pretty self-sufficient. A camel waters up and then just stays watered up. A deer, on the other hand, has to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. So it's a deer, first of all. It says, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul, it says, thirsts for God, for the living God. What I want you to do is begin to change your picture and realize that this is describing the slow agony of a drought. It's the slow agony of a drought. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I am dying of thirst. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, here's where you can really feel it. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In other words, people will look at what's happening around me and they say, where's your God? You're drying up in a desert. 
You're thirsty. You're panting. What's wrong with you and what's wrong with your life? Where is your God? He says in verse 4, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. Again, language of a man or a woman who is hurting. He says, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. What's implied by that statement? There was a time when I led everyone into worship. There was a time that my hands were raised. There was a time when I had a sense of intimacy with God. There was a time when my thirst was being satisfied, but today I am thirsty and I am dying, and my tears are my food. Very different picture than what I thought when I first sang that psalm. And what's implied is I used to go along like this, but that's not today. He said, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Verse 5, he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? The Hebrew word there means to be cast down. It means to be completely humbled. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed? This is a groaning. Why have you become disturbed within me? Then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Implied, today I may not be, but I'm hoping that someday there will be that day. <coughs> Excuse me. I hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And then it goes on and says, I won't praise him because my circumstances will necessarily change. He says, I will praise him, look at this, for the help of what? Say it. His presence. He says, I'll praise him for the help, not of his necessary deliverance, but his presence. He says, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mazar. <clears throat> Verse 7, he says, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls and thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. I lived for six years in Anchorage, Alaska, and Anchorage has got one of the top tides in the world. Anchorage is surrounded on three sides by water, the Cook Inlet, the Knick Arm, and the Turnigan Arm. And when the water comes into the tide, literally the tide comes in so hard and so fast that you can see in the springtime, in the summer, when it's a little bit weather bearable, but they're still wearing dry suits, but men and women surf the tide. It comes in like a giant wave. You can be standing on dry ground and in 20 seconds be 15 feet underwater. That's how fast the tide comes in. I'm standing here, I think I know where I'm at, and I am underwater. That's what's being described here. One of my dearest friends lives on the north shore of Oahu. Not a bad place to have a dear friend. And uh, he uh, is a free diver, which means he goes down without oxygen, just with a mask and a snorkel and fins, and he'll dive down 100 plus feet, and he will go down there with a spear gun, and he'll fish. And he can stay down there for four or five minutes, sitting on the bottom or near the bottom, just motionless, holding his spear gun, waiting to shoot a fish. Now, one day, one afternoon in a public pool, he decided he wanted to show me how to double, literally double my ability to stay underwater, and he did. I, he had me in a matter of 15 minutes, holding my breath about two and a half minutes, which that's a long time, but you can imagine five minutes. 
And one of the things that he's taught me about that is one of the real keys to staying under a long time is you have to calm your heart rate. You have to calm your heart rate because if your heart's going fast, you use oxygen. If your heart's going slow, you don't. And so he said, it, he, he said the, 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 the picture in your mind, he said, it's rainbows and butterflies. He says, you're down there and everything's rainbows and butterflies. Like, it's just no big deal. You're just down there. There's no care in the world because you want your heart to slow down. And you can stand down there longer. And you stay down there as long as you can. If you ever see someone coming up from that kind of depth, you'll notice that they're never looking up when they're coming up. They're always looking down. There's a reason why they look down when they come up is because if you're down, listen, if you go in the bathtub and put your head under the water and look up, how deep does it look like you are? Like a lot deeper than you are. If you go into a swimming pool and go down into the deep end, maybe just 10 feet and look up, it looks like 100 feet. So if I'm down 100 feet and I'm almost out of breath anyhow and I start to come up, What's going to happen to me if I look up? I'm going to panic. My heart's going to start beating, and what little oxygen I had left, I'm going to lose, and then I'll experience what's called shallow water blackout, which means I'll probably die before I get to the surface, which is why these guys keep looking down, and it's rainbows and butterflies, even though they have no more oxygen left inside their lungs. The writer of this psalm is saying, I am deep underwater. The boar tide has washed over me, and I am looking up, and I don't think I'm going to make it. That's the picture. And yet, then he says this. He says, in that place where these waves have rolled over me, where I am in way over my head, where the water is so deep and I have no air, where I am desperate and groaning, he says, deep calls to deep. That somehow in that place of overwhelmedness, somehow in that place where I have no air, somehow in that place where I don't think I can make it, somewhere in that place where my circumstances have completely overwhelmed me like a boar tide that's put me 100 feet deep and I'm groaning with no breath, that something powerful happens. That in that deep place, deep calls to deep. Now, commentators don't know what to do with that statement, but I can tell you anyone who's lived in a deep place knows what this is talking about. That somehow in this deep, dark place, God can whisper and speak deep things to the human heart that they cannot hear sitting on the beach on their beach towel. That somehow God sweetly and lovingly and powerfully meets me in that deep, dark, overwhelmed place in a way that I will never know with a drink in my hand in a lawn chair. Bottom line, this psalmist is saying this. <clears throat> Sometimes God takes us out of it. We know that. But most of the time, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You're probably going to have to go through it. And in the go through it, that is where deep will call to deep. Amen. Amen. I'll turn left in the Psalms to a very familiar Psalm and show you the same thing. It's a Psalm that many of us, maybe one of the first Bible verses we ever heard. It's Psalm 23. Follow with me in this Psalm. Another Psalm that has an interesting dark turning, just like Psalm 42. 
He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Same kind of feel as Psalm 42. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Who is the shepherd in Psalm 23? It's the Lord. Who's the sheep in Psalm 23? It's us. And we love the fact that this shepherd has just led the sheep beside quiet waters into green pastures. But keep reading. Even though he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. And who is the shepherd that just might have led that sheep into that valley? And where is the comfort for the sheep? It's not in the green pasture in this part of the psalm. It's in the valley of the shadow of death where deep calls to deep. I fear no evil because you're with me. The comfort of the help of your presence, Psalm 42. He says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There's the blanket. They comfort me. Then he says this, <coughs> excuse me, thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So now you have this Lord, this God, this shepherd preparing a table for you to eat in the presence of your enemies. Now back then when they ate, they didn't eat like we eat. I mean, they ate with their mouths and all that, but I mean, they didn't sit up to a table like we sit up to a table. They reclined at a table. And so here's how they ate. They would pull up to a table like this. The table would be about a foot off the ground, and they would be on this elbow, and they would eat with this hand. Now, you didn't eat with anyone you did not trust, because at this point, once I've got down on this arm, and I got this hand, I'm eating with this hand, like how vulnerable a position is this? If, if you got a knife or a dagger or anything you can harm me with, I'm completely screwed laying here. Which is why I only eat with someone I love and trust or know. Which is why to eat together in that day was such a sign of friendship and fellowship. You did not eat with anyone you did not trust. Too vulnerable. Yet this says that God sat you or me down, not just at a table to eat, but a table full of our enemies. Which means He put us in a very vulnerable place where we cannot defend ourselves. He put us there. And then it says this, in that context, after preparing this table for me in the presence of my enemies, He says, thou hast anointed my head with oil and my cup is overflowing. So even in that setting, He's caring for me. He goes on. He says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 says the same thing. Can't go around it, can't go under it, can't go over it. Sometimes you're going to go through it. And in the through it is where deep will call to deep. Yet when the waves roll over us and we find ourselves underwater, what do we pray? Here's what I've prayed so many times. Lord, help me avoid this. Lord, Lord, help me go under this. Lord, help me go over this. Lord, help me go around this. Lord, get me out of this. Do anything, God. Just don't make me go through this. 
When we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, what do we pray? Lord, get me out of this valley. Lord, get me away from this table. Get me out of the company of these enemies. We often assume that it would be to God's greater glory for Him to deliver us from our circumstances, to take us around it, under it, or over it, to somehow overcome it. And we pray that God would glorify Himself in the over it, the under it, or the around it. And we miss maybe the deep calling to deep and that the greater glory might be in the going through it. This is all over the Scriptures. Listen, I can go to Hebrews chapter 11, and I can read to you person after person after person who God took out of it. He took out of it. He delivered them from it. He rescued them. They didn't burn up. Things happened that were unbelievable. They were blown out of fish. They were in ovens that didn't burn them. It's incredible what God has done and what God can do. But if you keep reading Hebrews 11, there's another whole section in here that most of us never hear taught. Starts in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, says this, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Brock and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, these are the ones who conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They were delivered out of it. They quenched, they quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Man, I love that. Gosh, give me some of that. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured. Well, here's what goes on. Let's slow down. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being, listen to this, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men and women of whom the world was not worthy, it says. They were wandering in deserts, in mountains, in caves, and holes in the ground. And then it says about these, this second group, it says, and all these, and the first group, and the second group, all these, having gained approval through their faith, it said, did not receive what was promised. They got no reward for all that suffering. But listen to what it says in verse 40. Because... God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they, talking about them, should not be made perfect. In other words, these people I just read about have not received their reward because they're waiting to receive it with us, who often will have to go through it just like they did. It's unbelievable, that thought. They're waiting to get their reward for that with us. I want to tell you that we do not have to protect God's reputation by trying to make life better than it really is. Oftentimes you ask a follower of Christ how they're doing, and they'll have to say, I'm doing really well, or I'm doing better than I deserve, or some crappy answer like that that's not true. 
Because we think that if someone knows that we're hurting, that we're suffering, that life is hard, that things aren't going as planned, that somehow that's a reflection on our God. And I want you to know that that's a Greek thought, not a Hebrew thought. The Hebrews knew that life could be hard and God was still good. And I can tell the truth about a hard life because God is still good in the presence of that hard life because deep calls to deep. So a lot of times we're going through it. And when we're going through it, this is my life in some ways, we do everything we can not to feel the impact of what we're going through when we're going through it. So when the waves roll over us, besides praying for deliverance from it, what do we do? We check out. We live in denial. We try to minimize our circumstances. We try to justify what's happening. We medicate with sex, drugs, alcohol, recreation, entertainment. We become very busy. Uh, uh, we, we spiritualize it. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, we will not face life on life's terms. So we have to pretend that it's better than it is. And the church is awful at that. And we say stupid things to each other. Like, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not biblical. God will give you more than you can handle. And often does. And maybe right now. And that's both a corporate application and a personal one. Because yes, he will. And what I want you to hear is this. It could be the mercy of God that he has led you to a place in your life that is more than you can handle. That he has led you to a place in your life where your life does not work for you right now. That would be his mercy. I won't turn there for time. I won't turn there for time. I'm not even sure. I told Drew before, and I said, Drew, I don't look at the clock when I teach, so just somehow just get a hook or something. But in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, God addresses the serpent, and it says he curses the serpent. And then after cursing the serpent, he promises in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah. He tells this serpent who he curses, he says, and there's going to be a war now between you and this woman and the seed of this woman, which the New Testament says is talking about Christ. So Genesis 3.15 talks about what's fulfilled in John 3.16, that there will be a Messiah that will flip all this back over again. That when it looks like all hell has broke loose and I'm not in control anymore, I'm already telling you that there'll be a war between you and this woman and her seed, and you will bruise that seed on the heel. In other words, there'll be three days when you'll think you have defeated him, but he will wound you on the head, which means he will ultimately fatally defeat you, which means you're not going to win. So in the context of cursing the serpent, God is already now talking about mercy to the man and the woman who have just abandoned their understanding of their need of him. Because prior to the fall, the man and the woman had everything they wanted and needed. They lived in a garden where everything worked. They lived in a garden where, like, it was all awesome. There was no hardship, struggle, or strife, or, like, stuff grew. Like, there were no weeds. Like, relationships were tight. Like, it just, it was really, really good. And, and, and yet God put a tree in the middle of that garden. And, and the tree was in the middle because the man and the woman couldn't go anywhere in the garden without being reminded that there was a God in the garden and it wasn't them. That there was an authority in the garden and it wasn't them. 
And that as long as they remembered that he was God and they weren't, as long as they needed him, depended upon him, looked to him, and deferred to him, and submitted to him, they would have everything they were made for. And the lie of the serpent was that you don't need God, but you can be like him and have your own life apart from him. And that's what the lie was. And so the man and the woman ate the tr- the, from the fruit of the tree. And so God says, well, some bad things are going to happen now. But the bad things that happened were not to punish the man and the woman. And we know that because starting in verse 15 of Genesis 3, the context becomes merciful. So God is bringing mercy to the man and the woman. And then right after promising the Messiah, which is merciful, now he tells the man and the woman for about four or five verses, he said, now let me tell you what your life's going to be like not needing me. I'm going to tell you what it's going to be like. And he gives them four areas of their life. He says this, basically, you're going to have to get a job. Now, you had a job prior to the fall, but it didn't feel like work. It was really good, okay? But now, that job, I don't care, you might have the best job on earth, but that job is going to start feeling like work. I'm just sorry, it's going to feel like work. And you're going to try to find life in that job, but it's going to be work. And then you're going to want to get married. And you're going to think that the answer to your life is going to be in that man or that woman, and you're going to get married. And you're going to think you know what you're doing, and then you're going to find out like an hour after you're married that you don't know what you're doing. And if you thought your work was going to humble you, now this marriage has humbled you because you do not know what you're doing. And, and you know, then what's going to happen is you, you might have children. And let's just say work's not bad, and even, let's say your marriage isn't bad. Now you've got kids. You, 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 if you were humbled already, now you're going to do one of the hardest things you've ever done, and it'll about kill you and you're going to raise children, and it's going to be painful. And then if you survive the job and marriage if you get married and kids if you have kids, well, let me tell you what else is going to happen. That body that you're in that was made to live forever, well, it ain't going to do that anymore. I guess it's going to stop working for you. Now, when you're young, you don't, listen, when I was 20, I never thought I'd look like my dad, but I look like him. <laughs> Sometimes I look at my 25-year-old son and I go, God, I used to look like that. Wow. Like, whoo, like I could do stuff. <laughs> I can't. And I'm, start, I'm 55 years old. I'm starting to grieve some of that. But he said, your body will start to tell you. It won't cooperate. And so between work and relationships and children and then your body, listen, this man or this woman that thought they did not need God, well, that man and that woman, by the grace of God and in the mercy of God, just might find themselves back on their knees again with their hands back in the air again saying, God, this doesn't feel much like living. If you're not God, I have nothing. And they cry back out to this God they didn't think they need. And so all the circumstances around them that brought them to their knees again were the mercy of God bringing them back to a place of recognition of their need of God. So not only was God providing the resolution for the problem, he was bringing the man and the woman back into recognition of their need to receive it, which is all merciful. Which means if you find yourself in this place where deep is calling to deep, where you're so overwhelmed, where life doesn't work, it could be and probably is the mercy of God. Where deep can call to deep, where God can speak to you and show you and meet you in ways that he would never meet you anywhere else any other way. Barna, in his book, Maximum Faith, says this. He says, he did all this research around what helps Christians grow, like what helps them mature. And he found five 
themes that help Christians grow. And I don't recommend any of these, but this is how you grow, he says, in the research. You go to prison, you're going to grow. You go through a divorce, you're going to grow. You have a health crisis, he says, you're going to grow. You go through bankruptcy, you're going to grow. And you have the crisis with one of your children, you're going to grow. Deep calling to deep. The research just affirms Psalm 42 and Psalm 23. Three times the Apostle Paul prayed, God, help me go over it, help me go under it, help me go around it, just not through it. And what did God say? You're going to go through it. And Paul says this in Philippians 3, he says, he, he said he learned that, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of what? His sufferings being confirmed in his death. Paul said, somehow I will grow where deep calls to deep. You see, he says, it's my mercy in your life, Paul, that you will go through it so that you will know me. Jonah wanted to go another way. Listen, even Jesus in the garden he wanted to go over it, under it, or around it. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, was he surprised to be there? Was this like a hard left turn in the plan of God? No, this is something that had been promised in Genesis 3.15 and decreed outside of time. That Jesus knew, the Christ knew he'd become Jesus the Christ, God-man, to bring us back to God himself. And yet here he was on the night before his crucifixion, fully God and also fully man, and we see him in the garden, very lonely. He wanted his friends with him. His friends fell asleep, so he felt hurt because they fell asleep. And then he's praying there by himself, lonely and hurt, and he's praying to his father. And what does he say to his father? I'll paraphrase it. I'm afraid. Is there another way to do this thing that we have talked about since before time? He was so afraid, it says he sweated drops of blood. And then one of the Gospels says that an angel actually physically appeared to him as he was on his knees praying, and I think a physical reminder of the presence of his Father and what was about ready to happen. And that was when Jesus stu stood up with passion and said, not my will but thine be done. He went through it. When the Bible says, fear not. We often view that as the absence of faith. And I want you to know that we live in a scary world post-Genesis chapter 3 where bad things happened. The Bible says, fear not. Why? Because I am with you. Fear not because I am with you. Fear not because I am your shield. I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. I have called you. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. And sometimes I will deliver you. But you fear not because I'm with you in it. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. Can't go over it. Sometimes you're going to have to go through it. If one of my kids were in this room, let's say one of my kids was younger, and a tornado was whipping through Memphis, and one of my children was sitting in the back of the room back there, what would that child be feeling appropriately? Fear. And what would that child do with that fear? Where would that child run? To me. And why to me and not to you? I'm, the, I'm one of the oldest men in this room, and I'm furthest away from those back doors. Why would that child run to me? Because that child knows something about me and has something with me, and this building could blow apart, but that child believes that if he is with me, he's going to somehow be okay. 
You see, fear is not the absence of faith. I don't want my child sitting in the back of the room going, look at me, Daddy. See how proud you are of me because I, I can stand back here and I'm not afraid that the ceiling is blowing off this building. Rather, it's his acknowledgement of his human fear of a bad thing that's going to happen to him that actually calls him to reach in faith to find the one who will be with him in the place where it's scary. Fear is not the absence of faith. If you're not afraid, you don't need God. So fear is me being a human being in need of a God who will be with me in a dark place where deep will call to deep, where his rod and his staff will comfort me. We take all kind of verses out of context. Perfect love casts out all fear. Go to the context of 1 John chapter 4. That's talking about the love of God being in us, and therefore because God is love, we know we belong to Him. And we know if we belong to Him, He will not reject us on the day of judgment. And the more we grow in the knowledge of His love for us and in us that we know we're His, we do not have to be afraid of the day of judgment that our Father is going to put us away and reject us. So you don't have to be afraid about your eternal destiny. That's very different. We say, be anxious for nothing. Well, anxiety is not fear, Philippians. Anxiety is my rehearsal of trying to be in control of my circumstances so I don't have to deal with them. So I rehearse all the possible scenarios before they happen so I can be prepared for any of them. That's called anxiety. The word there in Philippians is not fear, it's anxious. Don't try to gain control to prepare yourself. Trust me to walk with you through it. We use passages like, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of courage. That word in, 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 in 2 Timothy is not fear. It's God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. And I'm telling you, a man of, or woman of courage is still afraid, but they want something more than the fear, which is why they're willing to do it anyway. Jesus was afraid in the garden, but he had passion to go do it anyway. The Scripture says, for the joy set before Him, He endured this cross, despised the shame, to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He wanted so much for us and for Him that He was willing to do what He was afraid of. It wasn't the absence of fear at all. So we even use the Bible to talk us out of our need of God. Deep calls to deep. Can't go over it. Can't go around it. Can't go under it. Got to go through it. And here's the biblical promise. The biblical promise is you, you don't go through it or you don't have to go through it alone. Now, this room is full of stories. Every person in here, stories of loneliness, pain, hurt, sadness, shame, fear, guilt, all that going on. There's a reason why I wanted to teach this passage this morning besides the fact that I sensed this body needed to be encouraged about where it's been and where it's going. But it's also because it was something I had to hear again today. A week ago this morning, I received the call that every parent dreads, where I received a call that my daughter had been in a rollover accident south of Charlotte, headed from Ohio down to Fort Lauderdale where she was working for the summer. There's a picture of the car. It took them an hour to pull my daughter from that car. Go to the next slide. There it is. She was driving that car. My wife and I immediately got in our car. We drove to Charlotte, didn't know what we were going to walk into. Go to the next next slide there. Stop right there. This car was moving 75 miles or 70 miles an hour down an eight-lane highway divided by a concrete barrier. And when it flew across four lanes to the right, there were rivers, bridges, guardrails, thick, dense forest. And yet somehow, somehow that car rolling across those four lanes into that woods, entered those woods through that 12-foot hole in the woods into a 50-foot clearing inside those woods. It missed a large tree on the right, 
You can see you can hardly, we walked for a couple hours on that highway. We could not find where the car had wrecked because it had entered right into those woods. If you hadn't seen the car go in, you wouldn't have known it was in there. And yet in the midst of that, there was this hole in the woods that this car flew into, missed a big tree, picked up a couple small trees, sheared the wheels off at the axle, car rolled over several times, car was upside down. It took them an hour to pull my daughter from that car. And I wouldn't be here if she wasn't okay. She suffered some pretty significant injuries, but it was enough that I could still come today. But here's why I tell that story. This is amazing that the same God, the same God that could have prevented that accident did not. And yet it happened. And yet where was he when it was happening? Where was he with her when it was happening? And how do you explain that a, a girl can get out of that car alive? Even in the trauma unit, level one trauma unit in Charlotte, they looked at those pictures and they said, we don't see people come alive out of those cars. And here's what Jessica shared with me. She said, Daddy, I found myself all week in the hospital rehearsing, because she was alert to the whole thing. She said, I was rehearsing every moment of the boom, boom, boom. There are three major bumps that she remembers as the car was moving and spinning and hitting stuff and going into that thing. And then she, as she laid there upside down waiting to be pulled out of that car. And they were working hard and with winches and saws and all this trying to get her out of there. She said, I didn't know why I kept rehearsing that whole scene. You would think that it would be incredibly tragic and traumatic. She said, I found myself being comforted by the memory. Listen to this. Comforted by the memory of those moments from when I hit those rumble strips and corrected and flew across the highway to the time when they took me out of that car. And she said, Daddy, she said, I didn't realize until a couple days in, the comfort was I just remember Jesus being so near to me in that car as it was rolling and moving into this sanctuary inside the woods where she said she laid there upside down and she could feel drops of water falling from trees onto her face and paramedics crawling into the car to brace her until they could get her out. She was describing deep calling to deep and even a longing to be back, not back in that car, but back in that presence of the Lord in a time when, quite frankly, her life could have been taken from her, if not physically, certainly what she could even do the rest of her life. I say to you this morning, you want to go over it, you want to go under it, and you want to go around it. But a whole lot of times in this life, you're going to have to go through it. And when you go through it, here is the promise of the Scriptures. Deep does call to deep. And the Lord promises that He will be with you in that valley, in that water, in that place. And it will be His mercy that puts you there sometimes so you find Him in it. Amen to that.